HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a hospitality platform that empowers restaurants to own their presence, profits, and relationships directly through their website. Opening soon listeners save 40% on the setup fee at getbento.com slash opening soon. That is G-E-T-B-E-N-T-O dot com forward slash opening soon. This week on Meet and 3, we're diving straight no chaser into the delicious crossover of the food and jazz worlds. And I think that sense of nostalgia is what makes it hard to do New Orleans food well because people just have these memories of these dishes. Certainly people from New Orleans, like, you're never going to make, you know, a gumbo as good as their mother or grandmother made, right? Comfort food, you gotta get your hands dirty, and the jazz as musicians, it's like it all goes together very well, you know? Check out Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. on Heritage Radio Network. I am your host, Jenny Goodman. And I'm Alex McCreary. And if you are just tuning into our show, we are a weekly show all about the business of opening restaurants. And we talk to some of the world's greatest restaurateurs and chefs and vendors and the people who really help take your idea to opening soon. Opening a restaurant comes with a laundry list of challenges. Let's assume you've checked all the boxes and you have your opening date. Now it's all about getting people into your restaurant. How do you devise the press, the press strategy for opening? And what parts of your business are unique and interesting from a press perspective? Will you get a review? And do you want it if you do get it? <laughs> uh, I'm confident that our guest today can advise on these issues and more. So riddle me this. What happens when a PR pro opens a bi-coastal champagne bars? Well, I'll tell you two very bubbly and busy restaurants. Um, Jen Pelka is here with us today. She is the founder and CEO of The Riddler, the popular all-woman funded champagne bar in both San Francisco and New York City. She is also the founder of Magnum PR, which is a leading PR agency that focuses on in the food and restaurant space in San Francisco. And prior to founding The Riddler, Jen did work alongside Chef Danielle Baloud um, for about five years and did marketing and content strategy at some 
great places like Open Table, Guilt, and Tumblr. So we're super pumped to have Jen here with us in the booth today. Yeah, welcome. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Thanks for making it. She's not busy at all between, I don't know, two <laughs> bi-coastal uh, champagne bars and, um, you know, PR firm. So how, first of all, how do you, like, manage all that? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> she doesn't sleep. Uh, <laughs> um. You know, honestly, it's all about the teams. And um, I try to find really amazing people who are really hardworking and great at what they do and um, give them the opportunity to have a lot of ownership over their work and try to get out of their way and let them let them do what they do best. But, yeah, it definitely takes a lot of time and energy and effort and work. And, yeah, not much sleep, I assume. Not a ton of sleep, but I'm, <laughs> I'm such a good sleeper that the moment you my head hits the like pillow. You can bang it out in like Yeah, exactly. I'm, I, I, I'm a great sleeper. Yes. I'm so, so good at that. <laughs> Very important life yeah. skills. Very important. So Jen is just coming off a n- opening in yeah. New York City. So this is the second Riddler location. It is. In how many years? Um, the second in three years. So we opened our San Francisco location, our first in January of 2017, so we'll be celebrating our three-year anniversary um, really soon, That's which exciting. is very exciting. It's a big milestone. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it is. Congrats. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and we opened in the West Village um, in October, so we're at about our eight-week anniversary right now. Mazel tov. That's, Thank you. That's a big one, too. Yeah, that just, feels good, too. Yeah, just in time for the holidays. That's right. doesn't want champagne for the holidays. That's right. It is it. definitely high time for champagne right now. Right. Are things smooth and running the way you expected after eight weeks? It is. It's going really well. I mean, our team um, our team here in New York is a really, really incredibly talented group of people who are really experienced and have done a lot of great work at other really amazing restaurant groups before. Um, both our chef and our beverage director um, worked at the Modern for a long time. Our chef, Nicole, um, who's so, so amazing. She was at the Modern for about five years, and before that, she was at 11 Madison Park in the Nomad. So she really knows what yeah. what it means to I run a kitchen resume. successfully. Yeah. yeah. And our beverage director also um, is a Modern guy, and before that, he was at Spago in Hawaii. And so we've got, we've got a crew of people who are really... Um, Anybody really come talented. over from San Francisco? Or? We um, have had a handful of our San Francisco team members come out to New York for like setting up the restaurant to do training. quite a bit of training. Right. Um, and we're thinking increasingly about how we're going to continue to build relationships between the two teams in 2020. That's a, a big area of focus for us in the next year. I see joint Slack channels. No, just kidding. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, we've tried Slack um, within the restaurant. Actually, my husband is also a restaurateur. He's um, really, really into Slack. He yeah. has five restaurants and they only communicate over Slack. Um, but for us, it hasn't caught on quite as much. It's hard. You have to make specific. Uh, I'm like, this is a total sidebar, not on topic <laughs> for today. But I will say, we at Tillit only use Slack for internal communications. Yeah. We have a strict, like, don't email internally po- process um, or policy, I should say. And then we use Slack to communicate. And that's that's the only way I've seen it be effective. Has it helped you? I it had definitely. I would recommend Slack. I mean, we've had a really great experience with it. But yeah. I know other people have horror had horror stories. So it's great because it, it can depends. replace all of the text messaging. And I think yeah, right. We had that coming from us. different angles and you know 
personal mix with yeah, business totally. mix is just not a, a great recipe. So I think the I just that find that sometimes works. things get lost and or you spend your entire feature. day. I know it's <laughs> brought to you today by, by Slack. Slack. <laughs> yeah, right. Sponsoring this next season. Not sponsored. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyone <laughs> knows anyone at Slack? Have them send us some money. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, so I, I digress. So tell us a little bit about how like your background in PR has informed your decision to open restaurants. And how? It really informs um, nearly every decision we make in the restaurant. Um, You know, I, I, at my core, I'm a marketer and I'm somebody who thinks a lot about story. Um, I think about not only like what is editorially relevant, what a writer would find to be remarkable, but um, I think that, you know, writers and reporters are essentially like really tuned in, really knowledgeable, hyper exposed consumers. And so if I'm trying to make decisions for the business as to what a reporter would really love, it probably means that our most discerning customer would also care about those things and find them remarkable or interesting or memorable. Um, And also, like, if we do a bad job um, on any kinds of details, whether it's service or hospitality or food or the guest experience overall, um, I'm really always thinking about how that fits into the overall brand story. And so for us... Um, we really think about, you know, our goal is to create the best champagne bars in the world. And um, I think we have the best champagne bar in San Francisco and the best champagne bar in New York. Um, and I say that not from a competitive perspective, but that's like really just what we try to do. That's what we focus on yeah, all day, every day. Show. Yeah. And, you know, I tell friends of mine or clients when they're thinking about opening their own um, restaurant or concept to think about what they want to be the best at and within what sphere is it on their block in their neighborhood in the city in the world right. and so for us like that that's what we really strive for and everything really ladders up to that why champagne was it something that you were interested in before was it the hole in the market was there um it's really truly driven by personal passion um i think that champagne is something you can and should drink every day yeah and <laughs> are you speaking you from experience yes uh i know we should have had some of pizza at lunch, i know actually. i should have brought a bottle that's on me um but i think that it's an incredibly versatile drink and it's so so great to drink either on its own as an aperitif or um you can have it with pizza you can drink it with um burgers oysters caviar, et cetera. So I just love it like as a beverage. But I think um, the reason why I really got into champagne in the beginning is that I think most like most people, um, you know, champagne is often used to commemorate a really special occasion or to mark an accomplishment or, um, you know, in moments that you really want to celebrate a particular memory. And I think the inverse can be true. Like when you bring out a bottle of champagne on any day, it elevates that day to a to a really important so moment. Why not do it every day? So yeah, why not do exactly. it every day? Yeah. And um, it's really fun for us to think about um, running a single subject wine bar and essentially forcing people to try a category of wine that they may not think about drinking otherwise. Um, so for us, you know, here in New York, both in New York and in San Francisco, we don't have a full liquor license, so we can't do martinis or margaritas or gin and tonics. Um, in San Francisco, that's not a big deal. People are really used to going to places where you can't get cocktails. In in New York, I've found that um, it's, like, very surprising for people that they can't get a martini or, you know, rum and coke. And, <laughs> um, and so for those who say, oh, well, actually, I'll stick around. I'll give this champagne thing a try. For those who haven't come specifically to find us as a champagne bar, it's really cool to be able to open their eyes to 
um, drinking champagne in a way that maybe they haven't done before. So we really see ourselves as advocates for uh, the wonderful, wonderful world of champagne. Right. So you're a discovery mechanism for people who maybe wouldn't yeah. have otherwise tried champagne or yeah. things in the past. So even if you're not a champagne drinker, still go to the Riddler. Are you yeah. surprised? If you think that you're not a champagne drinker, I would, I would encourage you to come. And Jen will see. change your That's, mind. I can, I can She's change your going mind. to change your mind. She's like, I see a woman who's determined <laughs> yeah. to change that mind. Yeah. Um, so, you, so you mentioned storytelling and, you know, just now. So tell us, like, what was the story that you thought of when you were coming up with this concept? How do you weave that into every, to all the moments that people are having within your space? And how do you advise clients to do the same? Um, yeah, I mean, I think with clients, I always recommend to them to think about what they want to be the first, the best, or the only at. And that's something that I heard from Helen Rosner, um, who she was saying that when she vets stories or thinks about pitches from publicists, what she's really looking for is somebody who's doing something remarkable and memorable. And a lot of times that comes down to the first, the best, or the only. Um, and I think that it's really helpful as an operator to limit what yeah. you're trying to do. Because focus, focus, yeah, focus. Is, even within a really focused concept, it's pretty easy to, <laughs> to have a lot of different ways to go with it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, as I said, we really try to focus on being the best champagne bars in the world. Um, another huge part of our story is that we are funded entirely by women and that we've got a lot of women in positions of leadership. Um, that's something that was both intentional and kind of happened to us. Um, you know, when I first started fundraising in San Francisco, I pulled together a list of everybody I knew who might have $5,000 or more. And I had a spreadsheet of, you know, hundred plus people. Mm -hmm. And almost all of them were just women who were naturally in my network. And when we got our first lead investor who came in for a big chunk of the capital and she was a woman, um, you know, I was just thinking more and more about it. And I was like, it would be so amazing if we brought together a group of women only to be a part of this. And, you know, this was at a time, this was before the election, this was before Me Too. We were at a pretty different place in terms of where we were thinking about women and investing. Now, yeah. even only three years later, it's remarkable how much progress has been made and how much more of a focus there is on equality, um, like gender equality specifically. Specifically in our industry, I mean, with after Me Too, it's, it's impressive that you had this idea before me too. And I think it's great that it wasn't in reaction to. Well, I think they, all of these ideas snowball yeah. and, um, I'm really proud that it's just been something that's been really core to what we do. And it's not a gimmick. It's a really, it's a really, really important part of, of who we are. Um, it's also an incredible recruiting tool for us. Um, we have so many young, talented women and also frankly, some really young, talented men who come to work specifically for us because, um, not only are we a champagne bar, but we're like a mission driven place in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And people want to be a part of a community where um, we provide a lot of opportunity for, for women to grow in their careers. I love that. And we, we always like to ask about fundraising just because mm -hmm. we are a business type show. And one of the biggest questions we get is about fundraising. So what was that process like for you being this like focused establishment and then having this mission where you end up having only female investors? Well, I love fundraising. I think it's really fun. A lot of people <laughs> hate it, but I love it. That's why she's a serial right. entrepreneur. She's like, I love fundraising. It's, yeah, most people I are like, fuck fundraising. I think it's actually kind of similar to pitching media. Yeah. It's all about like reading your audience and having a good natural pitch and a fit and also not being desperate. <laughs> like the worst publicists are the ones who send out um, like a press release 
to a lot of people and it's very poorly written and really desperate. I think the worst fundraisers <laughs> are the ones who send out like one email that's exactly the same to a bunch of people they've never met, they have no relationship with, and they sound really desperate. Like who's going to invest in them? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, the way that I do fundraising is really um, relationship based. Um, and I almost never um, pitch somebody that... It, it almost never is the case that I, like, send an email and say, hey, I'm fundraising, would you be interested? It's always that I'm, um, you know, there's that old ABC always be closing. Um, I'm constantly meeting with people who may have access to capital themselves personally or within their network. And I'm just always talking about the ideas that I'm working on and the things that we're moving forward towards. And so when I initially raised money um, in San Francisco like my strategy was I had this spreadsheet and I would reach out to people just to meet up with them for coffee. And the first 45 minutes of the conversation would be me asking them all about them. That's like sort of a traditional sales tactic is, um, doing your diligence to find out, like do the discovery, find out what is meaningful and important to them. Um, also, also kind of just a good tactic as a human being. Yeah. Exactly. Just like exactly. Entirely about yeah. Be a good lunch yeah. date. Right. Be a good lunch date. <laughs> Ask people about them, about them right. instead of talking about yourself only. Yep. Um, yeah. And I'd find out what they were up to and then they'd be like, oh, and by the way, what are you up to? And I'd say, oh, well, <laughs> I'm opening a champagne <laughs> bar. It's going to be really cool. Like, um, you know, and it's, do you have $20,000? Yeah. Well, I would just be like, <laughs> no. you know, it's only open to women and the investment units start at $20,000, but, you know, I've broken those for some people who might not have that much capital. And, like, inevitably, you would see an actual shift in somebody's body language of, like, oh, wait, this is only for women? And there are 33 of them? And, like, I could be one of them? And um, and I never, I've never, like, pressured anybody into fundraising, but um, it's such a huge and important part of our community. Mm-hmm. And we love to think about ways that we can interact with um, our investors even more. And of course they get access to reservations and um, they get access to events and they get gifts and we send them things when they come to the restaurant. But I think that there are ways that we can leverage that community even more. And that's something I'm, that's one of, one of the things I'm really focusing on in the new year as well. Did you have different investors for New York and San Francisco? Are there some overlap or? We offered the right of first refusal to all of our investors from San Francisco in New York. And um, almost half of them came back in wow. for New York, which is really exciting. That is very exciting. Yeah, yeah. very, very cool. Um, and then we have also a whole new community of people and a lot of people who I I'm so excited to have involved, like Carrie Diamond um, from Cherry Bomb and Crystal, the um, CEO and founder of Bento. Oh, um, we love Bento Box. Sponsors, it yes, sounds like. Yes, we love you, Bento Box. I love Bento as well. Bento is an amazing product. They, have, they are a great restaurant product. Restaurant should use. Yes. Um, and so people That's like that. That's why you have a beautiful website. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah, you. it's all due to Bento. <laughs> um, cool. No, I mean, this is all, it's always an interesting thing. And do you think your press, like your PR background helped you with the fundraising aspect as well? Absolutely. I mean, I, I obviously talk about it a lot. Um, and it's, it's very easy for people to write about it. I think people right now, especially are looking for really positive stories about how people are coming together and supporting one another. Um, and it's, it's just like one of the things that is always a touch point in, any conversations that we have from a press perspective. Um, it's not the reason why I did it, but it definitely 
um, I think adds an additional layer for why people want to talk about us cover you when you're like advising clients and like thinking about a marketing strategy for the Riddler where do you start and what are the core things that you're like this has to be built in so that we can make this press worthy so we have something to talk to you know people about so you have something to communicate to your guests well I always start with that first best or only right and I really push all of my clients to figure out what that is for them I think it's important for them for their team I think it's important for them in their decision making around how they run their business and it's also really important for how they interact with the press Um, and then we try to come up with once they've decided that they want to be the best Cuban sandwich restaurant in San Francisco well that's really cool like people want to write about that already that's like interesting and so what makes it the best Cuban sandwich restaurant in San Francisco Um, who are the people behind the story and so are those the operators yes definitely is it the chef absolutely is it the designer absolutely but then also it's probably like the person who makes their bread and the reason why they picked that bread producer is probably because like when they were in Miami getting late night Cuban sandwiches there was this particular bread that made the sandwich really special and remarkable and the best that they'd ever had Um, same with the pork same with the eggs all of those kinds of things Um, and just really picking apart all of the details that are interesting that ladders up to that goal of them being the best at X. Like those really interesting Cuban sandwich uniforms. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the Cuban sandwich uniforms. Yes. No, but I think these details do matter and they do, they do help to like tell a whole brand story. I really, I do appreciate that. And I think like as a publicist, it's great to like actually dial into those details so that that is something you can share with people. It's all about those details. I mean, for us, when we start talking about a project that we're doing, every decision that we make is pretty intentional about you know, how does it ladder up to that story? So, for example, when we're choosing our wine producers or our designers or our, like, the sign painters that we work with or our uniform designers, we look for as many uh, women-owned companies as we can possibly work with. And I think they're, whether you're a women-owned business or you're, you know, who, whoever you are, like, figuring out how it ties into you personally and, um having it be really intentional. I think also journalists are really excited about people who really specifically partner with other people who they've really intentionally chosen as opposed to just like, um, you know, a random artisan. No, I mean, I think people want to work with people that they like, that they trust and that like share same vision and values. So absolutely sense. Yeah. So the one thing I'm curious about is, so now you've gone through an opening in San Francisco for your own project and you've gone through an opening here in New York. And what do you see the differences between like the media and the press that you're pitching for, for both places? Is it harder to get coverage in one place? Is there a big difference? Do you have to change strategy based on market? Oh man, New York is a whole different world when it comes to the media landscape because the media truly is still really, really um, headquartered in New York, no matter what you say. I mean, you know, think about where we are right now. Yeah. You know, it's hard to get on Heritage Radio unless you're physically in New York. Yes, it's true. And it's... Um, so hit us up if you're traveling to New York. We'd love to have you on Heritage <laughs> Radio. It's hard to get here even if you are. If you're <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Um, one thing I can't stress enough for people who are in markets outside of New York is just to, like, take the time to come to New York really regularly and make relationships with people who are um, in the national media who are based here. And... Um, you know, press relations, media relations are something, it's it's such a relationship game. That's what it's called, media relations. relations. Yeah. And it's, it's something that, like, takes a decade or so to get really good at. And um, you have to constantly be working at it. I mean, an example is, like, if you hire a PR agency 
and you want to work with them for three months and you're expecting to get into the New York Times, that's like going to a gym and talking to a trainer and saying, okay, I want to run like, you know, what's a fast marathon? I don't know, four hours? Is yeah. that fast? I don't that's know. Good. Yeah. <laughs> but like within three months, like you're just not going to get there. Right. Um, Especially if you go to the gym like three times in the time, right? <laughs> up leading up to that mar- marathon three months from now, like it's just not going to happen. It's, um, you know, we're really fortunate that we've gotten a lot of coverage in the Times, and New York Magazine, and the New Yorker, and et cetera, et cetera. But that's because we've been working on it for like fifteen years, and I think we have a story that's pretty crystal clear. Um, but for, for other operators who are looking to break through on that, how, like tactically, how can they do that? So much of it is about truly like reaching out to editors whose bylines of, of articles that you like, saying, hey, I really love that article. Can I tell you a little bit about, about what I'm working on? I think um, you don't have to hire a PR firm. You can, but you, the operator, have a tremendous amount of power um, by developing your own relationships, by reaching out to people whose writing you like mm-hmm. and to say, hey, I really like your writing. This article was really cool. I'm working on something that I also think is cool and I think you would like. No, that's, I mean, that's good advice because I think people a lot of times feel like they have to hire somebody. Yeah. And, you know. Are there um, publications or outlets, national or local, that you feel like turn the meter more than others or, you know, actually bring people into your restaurant more than... Absolutely. I mean... Um, Increasingly digital uh, overall is more powerful than print. Um, there's nothing more powerful than the New York Times in print. But um, we've seen them drive traffic digitally too. I mean, oh, I mean, they, they drive they a ton drive of traffic yeah. digitally traffic, as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, but there's yeah, there's a huge amount of prestige obviously associated with being in the Times in print. Um, but also sometimes things get lost there. Um, a digital property that I think is extremely valuable and important um, is the infatuation. Um, we we got on a story, and this isn't even in Infatuation, but we got a big story on the Instagram story of the Infatuation about the Riddler in New York about four weeks into us being open. And the next day, for like two weeks, we saw all of these people coming in and asking specifically for dishes that they saw on the Infatuation. Interesting. And Interesting. they have a huge, their their digital presence is like really powerful and their, um, their readers really trust them and really believe in what they have to say. That can go two ways, though, because I, I want to delve into reviews a little bit. I think infatuation notoriously can be hypercritical and yeah. and painful, right? I mean, how yeah. where do you walk that line as, as an owner of a, of a business and wanting to get that attention, but understanding that it comes with it the risk of being the wrong attention? Absolutely. I mean, I think with the infatuation in particular, they're, they're quite disciplined about not... Um, like they don't take any media comps. They don't attend media events. They um, notoriously like don't really love press releases. They're pretty. They're pretty. Um, they like to keep the separation of church and state like really strong, um, and that's true obviously at publications like the Times as well. Um, but I think when it comes to reviews, <laughs> uh, well, we're in the midst of them right now. Um, we don't know how they're going to go. She's on pins and needles. <laughs> um, we have an Eater review coming out this week, and then the New Yorker is coming out this week as well. Um, and, you know, we've got our fingers crossed. I think all you can do as an operator is to train your team to do as good of a job as possible with that table with a critic. Um, 
that you know is dining in the restaurant. Hopefully you've prepared yourself enough to figure out who those critics are and you've got photos of them at the host stand and you've quizzed your team. Everybody knows who these people are going to be. Um, and you've got a protocol in place to keep everybody calm when they're there. And then also to make sure that, that all of the tables around them are being treated as well or better than the critics. I think Nobody wants to be treated like shit because the table next no, to them absolutely. is getting like over the top treatment. Yeah. No. And I think the critics really notice uh, no, that. No, yeah, of They course. know immediately when they've been recognized. And so we, um, we have a term uh, that we use to communicate internally when there's critic in house, which we use the phrase business as usual. And so I like that. Yeah. I mean, like in like spirit, that. it's that truly it is business as usual. <laughs> just don't screw it up. Yeah. Right. Just don't screw it up. <laughs> I can't get on the inside, but it's yeah. totally business as usual. Yeah. 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 And so that's our like, you know, Elvis is in the building. Yeah. <laughs> kind I like of a phrase. It. I like it. Um, but it's also something that like if a guest hears it, they don't like we try not to use the word VIP. Um, because if a guest hears and they know that someone's a VIP and they're and not. they're not, yeah. yeah. But if a guest hears business as usual, it's like, oh, cool. Business <laughs> as usual here. <laughs> it seems like a really well-oiled well machine. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think for us, it's all about like making sure that the team, that we've done our part as managers and operators to train the team to know all of the answers to the kinds of questions that a critic might ask and that for the kitchen to have enough support so that they don't get super slammed at the exact moment that we've got a critic in house. And then it's up to them. And it's a critics, um, you know, it's one person with a, um, with their own opinion of their own experience. And of course they matter, but what matters the most is like day after day after day, are you the kind of a place that people want to be a regular at? And you know that your restaurant is not the kind of a place that every single person wants to be a regular. And so that applies for critics as well. Uh, but you hope that they all really do. Yeah. How does, how does local media play into that? Especially since you're, you know, your bread and butter is often regulars that are coming in once a week or twice a week. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, in San Francisco, we didn't have to go through any reviews, um, because there's only one critic in San Francisco, um, and that critic is at the Chronicle, and they don't really review. We were, like, sort of more of a wine bar there. Here, we're much more of a restaurant. Um, but we work with local media constantly to get them in, to talk about things that are new on the menu, um, to teach them about champagne, um, to write about design elements of the space. Um, you kind of have to constantly be beating the drum. Right. But, you know, having influencers in is um, something that can also drive a lot of business, assuming that you want people who are following those influencers in right. your space. Yeah. <laughs> so, Tell us a little bit about, like, an influencer strategy, because I think I've, it is an interesting... Yeah. Because it's, yeah. it's a different strategy, as we were saying before, totally. than what you do with press. And I'm sure it's also... I'm sure you have local influencers versus... National influencers yeah. as well that could drive the meter more than others. Yeah, I would say tactically the way that we deal with influencers and journalists is in a lot of ways similar. Like we have spreadsheets and databases of people who matter. So uh, really important traditional journalists and really important influencers who have big following. Um, and then what we'll do is we'll create events where we invite them in to enjoy you know, dinner on us or brunch on us, something like that. And so we'll do essentially like a buyout or we'll do a table with influencers. We always create, um, 
spaces for them to take photos in particular. So we'll literally set up like a, mar- a white marble table that is in an area <laughs> with really bad light. Absolutely. <laughs> you um, said like stools and everything for them to stand on. Yeah, like step stools for them to stand on, really good natural light. Um, and we'll have them, we'll tell them at the beginning, we like welcome them very intentionally, tell them what their event is going to be like. We'll have printed menus for them. We'll tell them like, this is what you should expect. We, you know, between courses, we interrupt and say some really nice, interesting things like talking points that you want them to know. And then we'll let them know that there's going to be an area for photography after the event or at the end of the event so that they don't feel like they have to be taking photos throughout the entire time. Because otherwise people will like, you know, pick up a burger and walk across the room (laughs) and like take a photo of it under a tree or whatever. (laughs) Um, So if we if we set up an area that makes it easy for them, then they don't have to find some really creative and there's no burgers in the bathroom. Burgers, <laughs> burgers in the bathroom. Yeah, exactly. I love it. And you, do you recommend this for all of your clients as absolutely. well? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's um, one of the coolest ways to find out who are influencers who can have a really big impact on your community is, is to use your own Instagram um, for like going into your Instagram, going into your geotag, which is the physical location of your, of your company, of your brand, of your restaurant. And then, um, looking within that to see most popular. And then you can see people who have already been to your restaurant, who have already posted about you, um, and who have a huge level of interaction with your brand already. Right, so ideally come up first, if you yeah. have the more interact, like more engagement. Exactly. And so you can see these are, you know, you look at the top 30 posts and, you like the photos of these 15 people, you can reach out to them on DM or most of those people also will have their contact information in their bio. Um, reach out to them and invite them back in for an event and you can fill up, like I recommend filling up half of the room with people like that who already know your brand, who already have posted about it positively, who already have gotten a strong interaction um, about your brand through their own organic posting and then fill the other half of the room with people who are aspirational for you, who have really cool sites, really cool Instagram following, et cetera, that you really like that haven't interacted with your brand or haven't posted about it. And so then you get this sort of magical combination in the room of people who already know and love you and people who are discovering you. Yeah. I mean, that's really great, like tactical advice. And at what point do you recommend that they go for this like influencer strategy and, and what before, point I would say like before you open and then every six months. And also like continuously. Continuously. Absolutely. Yeah. We just did a brunch event in San Francisco because we wanted more people to know about some new brunch elements on our menu. And we saw like an immediate pop after it. Are we you start- paying people to come in or are they? We never pay people. You, okay. They just get a free meal. In basically. the PR yes. world. <laughs> and we, so there really are two ways. There's like proactive and reactive. So proactive is creating one of these events where you're deciding who's going to be in the room and you're controlling their experience entirely. And then reactive is like somebody emails you and says, hey, I'm an influencer. Can I please come in and have dinner for four? Oh, I only want premium champagne and extra caviar, <laughs> which believe you me, happens all of the time. Do you, do you <laughs> ever honor those? Um, we sometimes or? honor them. Yeah. Um, we set pretty practical constraints around what their experience will be. Um, I also try to gauge their level of knowledge around champagne and the level of knowledge of their audience. And, you know, we just look at their Instagram and see like, what, what do they care about? What does their audience care about? And we tailor their experience to that. And so if they're really into like fashion and beauty and lifestyle, but maybe they're not wine experts, then we'll use 
their experience either as an opportunity to teach them a little bit about champagne or just to provide them with like cool, fun rosé that's really crushable, that's like easy drinking and that they just like want to get really actually a photo of their manicure. Right. <laughs> Not from experience. Right. <laughs> but those are two different audiences and we want we want both of those guests. Um, I think the audience part is, is really important because I think in a lot of ways, and we've done this even with Tillit, is that you look at an influencer and like their feed and then you look at the number of people that are following them and say, wow, this is the perfect person. But it may be 10 million people that would never, never buy purchase, our clothes. Right. right. And so why am I spending my time and effort in encouraging right. this person to share when the audience is really the most important thing? Yeah, right. right. And, you know, it's also good to keep track of those people who reach out to you. Like maybe you don't honor their request when they first reach out, but instead of saying just flat no, you say, thanks so much for reaching out. We're, we host... Um, influencer events once a quarter or twice a year, we'll put you on our list and invite you for our next event. Right. And then that way you can control the flow a little bit more. And then it's you inviting them and maybe a plus one, but it's not like them plus three and it's actually their birthday. <laughs> right. And, and <laughs> you're really just treating them to dinner. Again, right. not from experience. Right, right. <laughs> are that. you, when you do those, just so people know, are, are you requiring a certain number of posts or are you just like hoping that it, it works out? You know, at Magnum PR, we um, base the answer to that question on from client to client. I think clients that get it the most do not require posting. Um, but you can but, like suggest it, basically, or you just yeah. Like... I mean, we we have like for example, we represent um, a food festival in San Francisco, and the tickets are really expensive. And in order for an influencer to attend for free for like what would typically be like $250 or something like that. In that case, we require them to post and not just once and not only on their story. It has to right. be um, some, some really substantial posting, but those are also, um, for that, we also tell people directly, like you must have 50,000 followers or something like that. Like we have, um, we get so many inquiries for an event of that sort that we have to have some kind of a limit as to, to what we're offering for free. Um, when it's coming for an event, um, you know, certainly with traditional media, I do, I never think that it's appropriate to even insinuate that you're expecting coverage. Um, but with influencers, you know, if you are inviting them, I don't think you should require them to post. I think in most cases they want to, because it's cool. That's why yeah. they want to come to your event. Um, if they're asking to come into your restaurant, most of them will tell you in the email in exchange for free dinner, this is what I will provide for you. And there are some clients that don't want to do it at all, and that's fine. But I think that it is a good and helpful tactic as long as you're selective about who you're bringing in. Yeah, I mean, we all need butts and seats, right? It's true. So. It's true. All right, on that note, we need to take a quick break. We're so engrossed in the influencer conversation. <laughs> um, we'll come back with more. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, helping restaurants own their presence, profits, and relationships directly through their website. Joe and Mary Fallon opened Fallon's Barbecue in 1977 in Thomasville, Georgia. After 32 years, Joe and Mary had to close due to health reasons. And to continue the restaurant's legacy, the Fallon son, John, and his wife, Deanna, moved to Thomasville to reopen the family restaurant. Two years after closing, Fallon's is back with the same beloved recipes. Fallon's Barbecue is one of 5,000 restaurants that drives high margin revenue directly through their website. Thanks to Bento Box. 
Visit getbento.com slash opening soon today and get 50% off your new website fee. All right, we're back um, and chatting with uh, Jen Pelka about um, PR in restaurants and particularly uh, with the Riddler and uh, her champagne bars. And we just got lost down a wormhole of trying to figure out what's going to happen now that Instagram has gotten rid of their likes. But I'm sure we have something more important and more (laughs) pertinent to opening restaurants that we could talk about. That's for sure. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I, I guess the point is that an influencer strategy is valuable regardless, just in terms of like driving traffic and awareness. Absolutely. And that you can make it strategic. I think one of the things that, um, sorry to, if I interrupted, just looking at some notes and, and um, we talked a little bit about how doing the influencer events every six months to keep going over a period of time. What are some other things that you do, obviously not with the new place in New York since you just opened, but with Riddler in San Francisco to sustain buzz after a year, after two years, after three now? I think a big part of it is just making sure that um, not only local uh, writers, but national people um, are aware of you and that when they're in town, you make it really easy for them to make a reservation. Um, Anytime I see, I actually think that one of the most helpful tools, helpful parts of Instagram as a tool is that you can now see when people are traveling. Mm. And so whenever we kind of keep tabs on, you know, Wait, what do you mean you can see when so like if Adam like Rappaport posting, is yeah. in oh, I see. San Francisco, okay. we know he's in San Francisco. I don't know if you got like a you, yeah, no, no, I don't get like a Google alert. Google alert. Google alert. Google alert. <laughs> Geolocation. Magnum PR. Ten Pelka are stalking your travel plans now. No, but we you know we follow people who are relevant, who we care about, and so if we see that somebody is in town, like Ray Isle from Food and Wine, the the wine editor. Oh, Ray, hey, you know, just a quick email. Hey, I see you're in the Bay Area. Um, let me know if you need any reservations. We don't even necessarily tell him, like, sometimes we'll say, like, these new restaurants are really hot and, and cool. They have great wine program, like, something that I think it's important for you to look at. My The way that I communicate most typically with media is, like, short and sweet. They get so many pitches. Um, and at this point, like, if we know somebody and have a relationship with them, hopefully they trust us. We've only sent them to places that we feel would be appropriate to send them to. I think that that's a really important part of a publicist's role is to like be honest with ourselves about what is right for each writer. And I'm never going to send an editor from The Times or Food & Wine or Bon Appetit or um, any big major national publication. I'm not going to send them to a restaurant that's like subpar because it only does us a disservice. Then they don't trust us anymore. Um, but, you know if we make it easy for them to make a reservation, a lot of times these people are traveling constantly. They don't have all of their reservations fully in order. And so whatever we can do to help, you know, we, we can. That's a good tip for sure. Yeah. Are there other things that you do? Would, do you do like events and things to keep sort of... To keep the, the mojo the going? going or... Yeah, I mean, um, you know, for a restaurant opening, um, what we always do is a series of pre-opening events. So obviously we send out um, an initial press release, like the moment that you sign the lease. 
and then oh, so oh, wow, you that scoop early. it that early. Oh, we start like six months to a year. Yeah, because wow. are your clients engaging you at the time that they've signed the lease? A lot of times we'll do like a one month engagement. Oh wow, really far in advance. Okay. That's like that's the best case scenario because national publications work six months to a year in advance. Sure. Yeah, and so you want to get on there spreadsheets of things to be looking out for. So, you know, we'll definitely do some sort of outreach around um, this operator is opening this stuff, this, the first best or only, right. Uh, right. you know, Wiener Schnitzel restaurant <laughs> in Austin. And, um, and probably, right? I mean, <laughs> Hey, that's, that's a story. Um, and, um, and it's opening in this neighborhood. Here's why this neighborhood is relevant. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, here's why this concept is relevant to the city. Um, uh, like other operators that they might sit within or something about their background. And then, um, you know, opening in fall 2020. So it's like, okay, that's on their fall list right. that they're now paying attention to. So we send that out to a big national list as well as local list. And then um, once we're a lot closer, we'll do um, some teaser kinds of announcements that are around like, you know, a more fully fleshed, uh, description of what the restaurant's going to be. Maybe members of the team. We always try to break up, um, pieces of information to different members of the media so that, you know, what they call it, if you're a publicist, is you call it exclusives. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to give you this bit of exclusive information. or um, So th- things that you can hold for exclusives are opening dates, uh, menus, wine lists, team members, um, design details. Um, yeah, any of those kinds of things. So we try to, rather than just, like, giving them all away to all of the media all at once, we try to, like, meter them out. Parse it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once we're close to opening, we'll do, you know, a, a, a whole series of first looks. So um, interior, exterior, video, stories, all this kind of stuff, like, with as many publications as possible during that pre-opening period. That's, like, the time that you can get absolutely the most coverage. Um, and then those first three months, people are really interested in you. Then it's really a question like you're asking, like, how do you keep it fresh? And so from there, we try to like really step back and look at the whole year and think about seasonality. Um, and of course you can't pitch like a new year's, uh, champagne story on December 1st. Like you can, and some people will do it, and some people are definitely writing their New Year stories right now. Like yeah. many people are, but so that can be a champagne story. Yeah, but yeah. like, like if you want to get a New Year's champagne story into a magazine, you have to pitch it a year in advance. Yeah, and then you have to keep pitching it for six months, and then maybe you're lucky, and then right. four months in advance, they're like, "Oh, we are doing it, we, and can right. you please uh, send, send us, us photos. a list of yeah, yeah exactly." Right. Um, but you have to like keep at it, so. Um, we look at the whole year to see what might be seasonally relevant. Um, we also try to pick apart other elements of the menu or the team that you can give out to people. So um, recipes for absolutely everything on the menu and when re- when those recipes might be relevant or interesting. Um, then also techniques. So, for example, we've got a raw bar at the Riddler. So, like, right. a technique that people always want to talk about is, like, how to shuck properly an shuck an oyster, how to store an oyster, what are the differences between the oysters, how should you serve them. Um, so, like, thinking about all of the kinds of things that you might want to teach your team, uh, you know, a general audience is probably interested in those. Um, we are always looking for different angles of champagne stories, so that might be our glassware. Like, we don't serve our champagne in champagne flutes. Yeah, we I've serve seen it that in men- wine like, When I was yeah. doing prep for this yeah. for today, I was like, that was mentioned on several occasions yeah. about you guys serving in 
glasses. In regular yeah. wine glasses. That's kind of a trend. So you can like right. look for other restaurants that also believe in that same thing. And then that's something that you can pitch right. either as a story on your own or as part um, of a larger. Exactly. Yeah, roundups. Like sometimes we get clients that say, oh my God, this brunch roundup came out and we're not on it. It's like, oh my God, you're not. Gosh, I am sorry. So then you just like write to that writer and right. you're like, hey, what a cool brunch roundup. Have right. you been into brunch at the Riddler? Right. And they're like, oh my God, I didn't know that the Riddler did brunch. It's like, yes, they do. Please come in. When can I make your reservation? And then you like try to get them on the brunch list. Right. Um, you know, I think looking at seasonality and just like consistently picking through what different stories might be. Um, also like anything that you can do that is fresh or new, um, fresh, new, timely, that's like actually news. Those are things that are really important. So I'm sure for you at Tillit, a lot of it's around like we're doing this new collaboration right. with this amazing right. chef and yeah. like Missy has her new jumpsuits and yep. they're super cool. Thanks for that plug, yeah. Jen. Yeah. Now shipping. Now shipping. Now shipping. <laughs> um, yeah, just in time for the holidays, right? Just in time yeah. for the holidays. Yeah, see, that's really Jen's relevant. higher. <laughs> <laughs> that's really relevant, though. Yeah. But, um, but then also, I think sometimes people forget a little bit about um, sort of like the softer side of the business operator. So, like, lifestyle features around mm-hmm. an operator, like things around, like the cut, yeah. um, doing a fashion story, or getting people on podcasts. So, yeah. we're talking about the business angle. So, yeah, you can always keep it fresh. You just have to keep looking for There's angles. There's lots to talk about. There's yeah. lots yeah. to talk about. Yeah. All right, we've been talking a lot, so let's go into <laughs> some lightning round. No, in good ways. I'm like, mm-hmm. I, I, we could go on about this for hours. I'm loving it. Um, so tell us what your favorite part about, these are meant to be, like this is our lightning round, meant to be, I'll take a step back, meant to be one to two quick word mm-hmm. answers. You can elaborate where you feel, you know, yep. passioned. Um, so tell us your favorite part about opening a new champagne bar. Um, hiring... A really incredible team of people um, and getting to work with them every day and um, providing opportunities for our San Francisco team to continue to grow. I love that. It's all about the team. What about your least favorite part? Oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, navigating bureaucracy. Yeah. Like, That's uh, a common refrain we yeah. hear before. Yeah. It's well, not you, a very fun you, part. You said that... Um, New York was actually easy compared to San Francisco. New York is for so much easier. Which is New York cool. listeners. I know. So for yeah. all, right, because that's, I mean, people in New York, we struggle, you know, with all the gas and FDNY and yeah. DOH and all that. Um, SF, yeah, San works, Francisco is way, way harder. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, favorite champagne you're drinking right now? Ooh. Not right now. Um, well, <laughs> I'll tell you. So I, this is going to be a longer answer. Um, okay. I <laughs> am really excited that I am launching a champagne brand. Mazel. Um, thank you. Congrats. Yeah, we're going to launch yeah. um, probably right around Valentine's Day. Um, Perfect. And it's called Un Femme. It's um, a brand that's all about women fitting into the story, um, but also because we're really excited to be partnering with an amazing group of women. So what I've really found um, at the Riddler is that people are – People really love champagne, but champagne can sometimes be a little bit of a confusing category for them, and they don't necessarily have a brand that they're super tied to in the way that in luxury or in beauty, people have brands that they, that really resonate for them. Like, the, what's the Aesop soap of champagne? Right, yeah. Like, I what know. is that? Is it Vivre Clicquot? I don't think so. I don't think people want to drink a huge amount of Vivre Clicquot anymore, but, like, what is, what is that brand right. for them? Um, and so... 
what we've really learned is that there are two categories that people are excited about. One is like independent grower producers that are doing organic and sustainable production. Then another is like crushable, inexpensive, sparkling rosé. Doesn't really matter where it's from. Um, as long as it's delicious. And so um, I'm really excited. I'm partnering with my brother, and he and I have launched this company called Unfem, and we're working with female winemakers from around the world to do sparkling wines. And our first two wines, one is an organic, uh, organically harvested um, champagne, small grower producer, female run, um, called Gonet Medvi, and um, they make really, really beautiful champagnes. Um, and so that is going to be our first champagne that we bring in. And then um, we're also working with a woman, Sam Sheehan, um, from Poe Winery in Napa um, to do a crushable rosé. Nice. So then will you always have like a rotating? Like, we'll always, always have, have those two wines. And so then I think we're going to add additional wines in the portfolio based off of other women who we really love to collaborate with. Cool. And whose wines we really, really love. Um and the brand, each of the wines is named after a woman. So um, it's like a woman's name. So the champagne is called the Juliet Cute. for Julie, yeah. who's Julie Medvi, the, the winemaker. And then our California sparkling is the Cali. I like it. Mm-hmm. And I think yes. we might do a pet nat called the Natalie. Oh, I love um, that. <laughs> I love a good pet So nat. they're meant to be like really accessible, but they're also, the packaging is incredibly beautiful. It's kind of lightly referencing Chanel. Um, it's meant to be something that's um, long-lasting and um, can be like a part of your life as a cool, stylish young woman, um, but that are also wines that we really, really love. So right now I'm <laughs> drinking a ton of Gonet Medvi, which is my favorite small grower producer that people haven't necessarily heard it's of. part of the job. You have to. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, so you can get it at the Riddler, um, and soon you'll be able to get Unfem um, in the market, like I said, around Valentine's Day. Cool. Exciting. Um, we ask everybody this favorite business book. Ooh. Um, my favorite business book is the, um, the one minute manager. Okay. Have you read this? No. Oh, it's a good one. I heard about this through Will Gadara. Um, and it's very short and (laughs) it's all about, it's kind of a parable. The cover is kind of like cartoonish in nature. Um, and it's all about how you manage people in one minute. But it's right, but it's a parable, that. like I said, and it's really. I mean, that seems super relevant for the hospitality industry yeah. too, because Jordan Salcido, I know, is also a huge fan of this. I feel like I've had a conversation with her about it. Um, but it's all about like hiring and empowering people and asking them questions to make them think, yeah, and then make come to their own decision quickly. Yeah. Quickly. quickly, I like that. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I like it. I like it. All right, we're running out of time, so just last one is okay. one business resource that everyone should know about. Um, I think everybody should listen to the How I Built This podcast. I love that so podcast. Good. I'm Agreed. listening to the Outdoor Voices one with oh Ty Haney God. right now. It's so good. So good. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm religious. I also am a huge fan of Shark Tank. So are we. Yeah. we oh Guilty pleasure. You <laughs> too love, love Shark Tank. <laughs> Anytime I have um, friends who are fundraising, I tell them, stop, go watch a marathon of Shark Tank. I mean, it is actually helpful for that yeah. in that sense because you hear, you know, they ask the same questions over mm-hmm. and over again. It's yeah. about like, what's your story? Mm-hmm. What, who's the founder? Like all these things that are yeah. super important to to investors. So I would knowing your numbers, knowing your numbers, yeah. the fundamentals of the business. Yeah, yeah. Um, we always do opening soon announcements, and uh, aside from Unfem, that is coming in February. What else? What do you got? 
What do I got? Well, the market line just opened. So all the vendors, so like right. it's the downstairs yeah. to the Essex market for those people who are in New York. So go check out our friends. Speaking of wine. People's. Speaking of wine. Yeah. yeah. So Jeremiah and Fabian yeah. from Contra Wild Air um, have opened People's and it's great I'm natural. I'm so excited Yeah. To it's, it's, first of all, it's a beautiful space because yeah. it looks like it's just super cool and um, yeah, so they have a great natural wine store and there's like the Essex Pearl, which are some fishmongers who've been around for a long time. So we're excited to have that in the neighborhood. And then we also have Suited NYC that's opening in January. They DM'd us. So shout out to Suited. Aww. We'll be looking for you. Um, that's all I got. Anybody? That's cool. I'm really excited for the team at Anton's, neighbor okay. of ours, right around the corner from the Riddler. Okay. Um, and they're super cool. And Natalie, who's the wine uh, director, was like 15 years ago an intern on my team. No, <laughs> I love Yeah, and then she went on to do like amazing psalm stuff. So she's How really funny. Awesome. What a small world that you both yeah. ended up in. You know, yeah, she ended up in hospitality too. Tiny world. And then I'm really excited for the Shake Shack team, one of our Magnum clients, um, opening their first San Francisco location. There's um, not a shack in San Francisco. There are two in the Bay Area, but their first oh. San Francisco location is opening very soon um, in the heart of the marina. That's awesome. Which is so cool. Yeah. We're very excited to have Shaq. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Love him. Uh, special thanks again to Jen for being here. Uh, we'll put a wrap up on our website, tilletnyc.com. If you're, um, we can also send one by email. If you're on our list, if you're not already, then get on it now. Where do we find you on social and all your influencers? So I'm at Jen Pelka, <laughs> and then we're at the Riddler NYC and at the Riddler SF. Um, we're at Unfem Wines. We're at Magnum PR. Serial uh, entrepreneur who just keeps on She's all over yeah. the place. Yeah. My husband's at Suvla. <laughs> um, so, yeah. <laughs> you can find us at uh, We Are Opening Soon and at Till at NYC. And uh, if you loved our episode today, then make sure you tune in next week. We're going to be chatting with David and Anna Posey from Elski in Chicago uh, and talking about working with... Uh, family. Yeah, we don't know one. anything about that. It yeah. It's going to be like a therapy session. No, right. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much, Jen. Thank yeah, you. thank you. Opening soon is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter, enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org, and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You could also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.